Welcome to the Liberty Portal podcast. Uh, it's good to be back with you. My name is Joe Sheehan. I am one of your hosts for the show, and we've got a really uh, interesting set of topics today. Um, first and foremost, Ron DeSantis has a formally announced his candidacy for president of the United States. Um, some Nazis have, uh, neo-Nazis have raided Russia, as it turns out. Uh, lots of interesting things to get into on that. And uh, the debt limit. The time limit is approaching. They haven't made a deal. What's going to happen? Is the sky going to fall? We'll find out. Before we do, uh, wherever you are hearing my voice or seeing my face, please do like, subscribe, comment, follow, and share the show. We really appreciate all of you out there who have been supporting us and helping get the word out. We're having a lot of fun doing this. We hope we're adding value to your lives, giving you information and entertainment. And uh, one of the most informative and entertaining people I know is David Rand. Great transition, man. You are nailing these. You know what? Well done. I'm, I'm really, I'm practicing. Hey, everybody. David Rand here, and uh, appreciate you all, too. Uh, don't forget to comment on these. Uh, that algo loves that, and uh, that's how we got to feed that algorithm. It's like a beast, right? You got to keep feeding those comments. So keep it fed. Keep it up and appreciate it. Yeah. Speaking of beasts, we got a pudgy penguin in, the, in our midst as well. Less entertaining and less valuable than David Rand. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I am here. I, they put me on the camera again. I am back. Nice to be here. And we're, you're going to see more Kyle in the in the future. Our, our friend Henri has had some very cool opportunities come his way, and he's going to be taking a step back. He'll still be around on the show from time to time, but Kyle's going to be going to be filling those very large intellectual shoes. So uh, good luck to you, buddy. Oh, that's a lot of pressure. Yeah, we have to have him do uh, an I'll IQ have store to, score. I'll like, have like to talk test. about Coast Theorem. <laughs> yeah, you're going to have to brush up for sure. <laughs> I'll definitely have to brush up on some things. And our boy Evan on the ones and twos back there. How you doing, Evan? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. Recovering. 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 Oh, we had a trip last week. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Where'd you go? We went to La- we went to Las Vegas, a oh. few of us. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It was first time going. What a city. I thought I understood people. Then I went there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you'll, you'll hear my voice is still recovering from being gone. Uh, yes. Yeah, you all were You all were in Las Vegas. Yeah, sorry. Sorry, Joe. <laughs> oh, that's all right. No, trust me. I, you couldn't pay me to go back there. <laughs> it's no not Ar- for another 10 years. It's no Ireland, but, you know. <laughs> well, I don't know. There's a small Eiffel Tower there. There's probably like some other things that are, you know, close to. Uh, yeah, we were basically <laughs> in Egypt. We were in Paris. We were in New York. <laughs> right. We, you know, we were we were we were in Caesar's Palace. It was yeah. We, oh, fair. We, we we were all around the world this weekend. Micro tour of Europe. Yeah. Wow. By a, way a of Nevada. Knockoff version of that, of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's the, the the thing about Vegas is is it's a giant scam. That's what it is. Yeah. Yes. And the best way to enjoy it is to just go along with the scam. You know, you're there to get scammed, and that's what you're there to have a good time with, and. You lean into it, you have a good time. Yeah. You know, interesting, uh, fun fact from a friend of mine uh, who likes to play cards occasionally. He and his wife will go down to Vegas. Pro tip here. Uh, they went to the slots first night there and they spent like 500 bucks. And as you're spending a lot of money, like the, you know, the pit boss or whomever is managing that floor will come over if you spend enough and they're like, hey, like, where are you staying? Oh, we're over in this hotel. Oh, well, can we give you a free room to stay here tonight? Oh, of course. Yeah, Totally. And if you if you get their like loyalty card or whatever, and you spend enough money, you just go there planning to spend a few hundred bucks at the slots night one. They'll comp all sorts of stuff for you for the rest of your trip, and then re- continue doing it, send you emails, and to try to get you back to spend money in their casino. So if you build that into the cost of your trip, 
then you know you can maybe sp save some money and get some nice accommodations and free meals and drinks. Well, and and all the hotels there are also built like a labyrinth to keep you trapped inside. Of course, like it's, it's like one big escape room, and you're just trying to get out without losing too much money. Right. Though <laughs> right. <laughs> that's that's especially true because when we went, it's a bunch of yokels from Montana. We're, we're like, we can't navigate this place. There's no mountains to look at. How do you how do you decide which way's north? Like it's He's impossible. Like, I just see another slot machine. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, I think intentionally, right? They don't put windows in, so you don't know what time of day it is. Mm and no clocks and they pump in oxygen to keep I, you awake i heard about that which i kind of liked that yeah no wonder i felt like i had so much energy <laughs> and i've i've never had so much fun losing so much money in one place before yeah we, we better get off this topic or evan's gonna turn into a blackjack stream <laughs> <laughs> guys i gotta go <laughs> well let's get kicking into this news today uh ron DeSantis announced his candidacy for president uh by a very unconventional method, uh, Twitter Spaces, which uh, was sort of an interesting one because Elon tried to host it, and then the number of people that wanted in to listen to this live stream it was like over a million people and going up by like fifty thousand a minute, and it, I guess it crashed Elon's Twitter or something like that, and they had to host Multiple it. Times. They had to yeah. host it from from David Sachs' account, uh, but it did eventually happen, and um, and and Ron, you know. Did his thing, and you listened in. Live, I, I listened right? live. Yeah, no, it was it was at like seven hundred thousand people when like the final crash on Elon's account happened. Oh wow! Um, when they switched over to David Sachs' account, I think it peaked probably around like three hundred thousand. Gotcha. Um, but it did show that there was a lot of people flooding in, mm -hmm. and it was interesting. Like, you have everybody saying it was a disaster, right? Like you have the Trump camp saying it. And, you know, from one way you might say that because of all the crashes and stuff, but mm. it did also show that there was a lot of energy, like a lot of Interest. people coming in. And um, But, yeah, it, it was a particularly more interesting, I think, in the latter half where it turned much more into like a podcast conversation. Like it was more free flowing and just like free flowing Q&A and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, the actual like announcement itself was a little lackluster because like. DeSantis was trying to do the old school politician-y like this is why I'm running for office and right. he had like a prepared yeah, thing. it was like a and campaign it, speech yeah, just it, it on didn't Twitter feel it didn't feel natural like it didn't feel like a Twitter spaces like I'm on Twitter spaces all the time it, it didn't feel like that natural kind of like podcast everybody in a room together type of a thing but once they got out of the campaign-y thing then it, it then it felt pretty good interesting did you listen to it David uh, I did not but I, I have I read about it and I saw a lot of the post interviews uh, on it and I, I do think that's the question is, is did it do a good job framing him as like an energetic candidate or was there just the novelty of a different space being used to announce a candidacy? I mean, it's the right. first time being done that way. And you got to wonder if this was like a strategically good decision or not. If, you know, of course, they one crash two, his energies didn't seem great or really match the medium. And third, like they launched this ad, you know, they actually kind of undermine their own case because they launched a bunch of ads beforehand to announce that he's announcing for presidency still went well you know it still had a lot of views uh, but i don't know that it's really the kind of launch that i think they were hoping for yeah one one of the things though too and i, I saw somebody had this uh line of thought i remember seeing like a thread of tweets was um it was like some campaign manager some whatever at some point where they were saying that you know, when you go through traditional means now, all anybody wants to ask you about is Trump. So, like, if you were just going to regular, uh, like legacy media, like regular corporate press type of stuff, all the questions are going to be about Trump. But if you, you go into these alternative spaces, like you can finally actually like pitch your message, do your thing. So there is something interesting to that where 
it is interesting also watching things like Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, RFK Jr. They're really tackling the new media space as part of their main message. I mean, like like Dave Smith interviewed RFK Jr. last week, right? Um, It's we're watching a changing dynamic. And I think a lot of the negative press on the Twitter spaces stuff is also just coming from corporate press people that are not happy that their market share is uh, moving away from them. Totally. Yeah, it's interesting to, to your point, David, about like, did it make him look the way he wanted to look? I, I noticed, and this is me being sort of a production nerd, but the production value wasn't there. Hmm. Like when he would talk, he was way quieter than than David Sachs, than Elon, than most of the people who were tuning in to ask questions. Hmm. And, and it, it was actually challenging to hear what he was saying for me. So like as far as co- actually communicating the message, it didn't really do that very well for me. You know, and also that's an, another difficulty is you can't see them. So like if you're having trouble hearing them, you can't actually read lips or try to discern from their mannerisms what's going on. So I wasn't like really blown away by it personally, but I guess, you know, what's the polling say for him versus Trump right now? Uh, I'm not sure. I can double check. It's that. still probably relatively low. I mean, Trump's still sitting over 50% yeah. of the Republican yeah. electorate. He's like 20s or something like that. Yeah. Uh, but that, that said, I don't think it's necessarily, it's too early for the polling to be very meaningful, yeah. right? right? There's still a lot of time left to go. Uh, that said, you got to wonder, like, does he have a brand that can be set up as the kind of charismatic leader that Republicans are looking for, right? Because yeah. that they need is they, you have to cut through the corporate press playing defense for Biden, Right. How do you do that? Because you can only do so much on the alternative channels, right? You can you can build a following there. I think I think you're right. Vivek and and uh, RFK Jr. are doing a good job going to those alternative outlets, but they have to, right? So eventually, you have to get to the mainstream because the biggest electorate are people who are not online boomers. Yes, right? that's the biggest voting block in the country. So how do you get to them? You have to go through the corporate press. I'll give a yes, but I think Tucker Carlson leaving Fox News is going to change that dynamic and actually mm-hmm. i just saw today and i don't know if this is has really gotten through the media yet but it i saw something that suggested that tucker carlson's studio was raided by fox news in some way and it was like dismantled like they were trying to sabotage his new show that's that he was going to or is going to launch on twitter mm. but my parents as an example avid tucker carlson viewers right they don't watch fox news anymore mm. and you you saw the the ratings hit that they took when tucker left Hannity and all the other shows lost like millions of viewers over the course of the following weeks, even the, the very, very next week. So to me, I think what that suggests is boomers maybe aren't a monolith in the way that we often paint them mm. and that perhaps they're more attracted to personalities as opposed to uh, channels, right? Fox News obviously doesn't have that much loyalty, right? And so to that, you know, maybe the new media is the place where where they're going to find themselves migrating to as the voices that are actually speaking to them that are that they believe are speaking truthfully kind of get flushed out of the system as it becomes more and more corrupt and tries to control its its pundits more and more. So I think that's right. And, and here we have it. We got uh, on MSNBC, no, MSN News, Tucker Carlson rebuilds after Fox News allegedly raided his home studio. That's wild. Yeah, I would want to dig into it a bit more, but interesting. Hmm. I hadn't heard about that. Yeah, I just saw it today. And uh, part of me wonders, like, how does Fox News raid a studio? Like, can they just do that? Uh, you got to wonder if he had, like, kind of like a, you know, your last day of work, you grab the stapler sort of situation yeah. kind of going on, but it was like a camera. I it was like know. their gear. So, like, we're taking all this <laughs> well, back. He had, my awesome. understanding is he'd been filming, like, all of his stuff from his home studio for, like, a long time now. Right. So, mm. yeah, I don't know. Interesting. but Well, and I think to to, to this as well, this should 
give critics of Tucker Carlson a little bit of pause because I think a lot of people who are generally not right leaning and you know maybe independents, you know, left leaning uh, Democrats, etc., just look at him as like a right a, a stooge for Fox News, yeah. right? He's just like this sort of conservative blowhard, whatever. Why is it that the one real prominent conservative news station is raiding his studio? If he's one of them, if he's just part of this big monolith of media, conservative media, why are they doing that? And you would think that they would want to keep him on there. Uh, you would <laughs> on their thing if he was really. You would you know, if he if he was towing the line, the of right? If he was Fox if News. he was following the narrative and doing what he was supposed to do, wouldn't they want to keep the, his millions and millions of viewers? I mean, he had the best rated cable show by a long shot in so. history ever. It, right. Yeah. Right. So similarly, right after the DeSantis um, announcement, he then went on Fox News with Trey Gowdy, his former colleague. And they did an interview there. I thought I had some interesting components to it uh, when it comes to hitting on some of the major pieces for what a Republican candidate will care about. And then secondly, like what a president really has to engage in. And that's always the question. So yeah, quick reminder for those who aren't been tracking. Ron DeSantis was first a congressman. Then he ran for governor, uh, barely won as governor. Uh, the Trump, Yeah, the, the Trump uh, narrative was that, you know, Trump helped him get elected to governor and that this is a loyalty question that he's somehow suspect because he's not being loyal to Trump at this point by running against him. And uh, then that, uh, and then he went, got reelected by tremendous margin during, in 2020 or is it 2022? 2022. 2022. 2022. Yeah. And he won by 20 points. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which historically Florida is a much more purple state than that. Very interesting on how that kind of played out, whether that's in net migration or people who are just converting to a more Republican straight ticket vote. Uh, that's, uh, I think, still an open question. But they got into foreign policy, which uh, Trey Gowdy is a hawk, right? He is a well-known hawk and asked him about Ukraine. So we can cue that up. You uh, wore the uniform. If you are elected president, you may be the first one in a while uh, to have worn the uniform. How would you address the ongoing war in Eastern Europe between Russia and Ukraine on day one of a Ron DeSantis presidency? Well, first, I think what we need to do as a veteran is recognize that our, our military uh, has become politicized. Uh, you talk about gender ideology. You talk about things like global warming that they're somehow concerned. And that's not the military that I served in. We need to return our military uh, to focusing on uh, commitment, focusing on the core values and the core mission. That would be something that I could take care of on day one. Uh, there'll be a new sheriff in town as commander in chief. And I think you'll see recruiting start to get back to where it needs to be because people don't want to join a woke military. And I think it's been really, really problematic. Look, in terms of what's going on over in Eastern Europe, um, you know, I'd like to see a, a settlement of this. I do not want to see a wider war. I think it's completely unknowable what it will look like in January of 2025. Uh, but I would not want to see the United States with our troops uh, get enmeshed uh, in a war in Russia or in Ukraine. Okay. Pretty slippery answer. Like it's in there and it's, and you can really pull out of it. you want, if you want to hear somebody who's kind of talking in a, in a more restrained way, in a more Trumpian way, trying to pull those Trump votes away from him, uh, this is how to assess it from political point of view, but from a philosophical point of view, I think leading with trans issues and I think that's a good, that's good political, but it's very concerning, right? You talk about like, a proxy war with the largest nuclear state in the world that we're currently engaged in, 
with you know, offensive capabilities going into Russia, mm-hmm. into a country that has said, if they feel like their government is under danger, they will use nukes. Mm-hmm. Like, if you, got, you know, like I mean, that's, that's a hugely consequential issue. And then to lead in with a very, um, you know, pithy answer about transgender issues and climate change in the military, which is uh, an issue, but it's not, it, that's not what you're being asked about. And then second, to have such a vague you know, we don't know what it'll look like in 25. That basically leads him to the room to say like, well, the conditions have changed and therefore we have to keep doing this. Well, right. And it was also very conspicuous that he he said specifically, we don't want our troops enmeshed in a war. He mm-hmm. didn't say anything about money or arms or, you know, anything else. Right. So it's not saying I don't support this war at all. It is. DeSantis is in a weird spot because in a lot of ways he is kind of seen as trumpian in a sense but he also is kind of forced to have to court the people that all fled the party because of trump and like that hated trump so like he he's like in this weird point where where he attracts a lot of like the general maga movement people but he also is he has to attract like the neocons and they're the and they're the ones with the political operatives that are surrounding him right now and trying to kind of you know make money off of his campaign and all this stuff right so i don't know he's in such a weird (laughs) He's in such a weird just spot in this campaign. Right. Because like, they also have Tim Scott coming out, right, which yeah. is a, a U.S. senator, uh, South Carolina, I want to say, uh, who's, you know, very consequential for the Republican primary is South Carolina. Additionally, that he has, you know, he has a uh, he has a grassroots following him. Tim Scott does. So uh, but he's kind of having a more establishment feeling campaign, too, in a lot of ways. So, yeah, he, he has to try to box in there. Tim Scott announced on the same day DeSantis did. Didn't get any other coverage, of course. And then, because uh, the media, you know, has a harder time with Tim Scott because he's black. Uh, but additionally that there's, you know, Ron DeSantis has been like the face of anti-COVID, even though he's not, right? He's He was, you know, pro-lockdown until he was. With that said, it, you know, tensioning against Trump in this space is very interesting, right? Because he has, he, nobody, nobody's pro-sending U.S. troops into Ukraine. Like literally no one said that as, as an issue, yet that's the thing that he's saying he's not. So to me, that's, that's good campaign speak for I'm totally open to this. I support the existing strategy. That said, he is saying that there was a sue for peace kind of component in there. Uh, he wants to see it resolved. So that's that's encouraging, but we don't know what that looks like. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's it's also it's not as strong of a stance as Trump in the CNN town hall that was just like people are dying. Yeah, <laughs> like that whole thing. Right. Yeah. Right. And he uh, would end it in three days or whatever. He said. 24 hours. <laughs> 24 hours. Yeah. yeah. It's like, OK. Would which, end it. which should be okay. taken with a giant grain of salt, but uh, of yeah, as we covered when that when that town hall happened. But the rhetoric is a lot stronger, and this this yes. is one of the things that I think DeSantis has against him in a lot of ways. Is in a lot of ways, DeSantis is this kind of low energy nerd, like <laughs> <laughs> that's and and he's going up against one of like the biggest bullies that's ever entered politics, which is Trump. Like, yeah, the contrast with yeah. Trump does make him look very bland. Like he does. even if he is an interesting person, it's like you know trying to eat a ham sandwich after eating a jalapeno you're not really going to taste anything you know what I mean? yeah. <laughs> it's like, well it's, it's also analogy i like that <laughs> well, yeah. well it's also like i mean these shouldn't necessarily be the factors that govern people's voting decisions but they are people are shallow like this he's also kind of got this like whiny nasally voice and you know like those things do matter because people are looking for essentially a spokesman for america right and and I think just traditionally the nerdy guy does, isn't the one that is going to be the one that uh, gets the nomination. Right? There's this tension between having the right policies and having the right brand and charisma or charisma yeah. to sell that those policies. 
And the question is, does can DeSantis cultivate that? Is it too late to cultivate that? When during COVID, right, he had a lot of pushback from the press. He did a good job about defending himself at press briefings and things like that to actually really, you know, stand on where he was actually, you know, solidly standing, which was, you know, everyone else is still locked down. I'm not locked down anymore. So I, I do think that there's a, there's a space for him that he can get to there. It's just the question is, will he in the pressure of a presidential campaign or is he just being pushed to run? And this is going to be, you know, him being drug into the situation where he's his more natural, normal attitude kind of comes out and maintains. Well, and I think a lot of his popularity during COVID was a lot of people read about the things that he was doing and they never actually saw him speak. Right. Mm. So the, I think a lot of people had this vision of who he was that was not accurate necessarily. Mm. But now that they're seeing him like full front, they they're like, uh, he, he doesn't have that. Trumpian energy I wanted, you know, like, right. like there's, there's kind of that dynamic that's at play. I think for a while he was trying to cultivate that, like, mm -hmm. you know, months ago, even during COVID, you saw some of the mannerisms come out and like, you know, some of the, the different things when to try he to one, two, like he mm -hmm. had this big election speech that was like, we're going to destroy wokeness and we're going to, you know, yeah, he's doing right. that thing, his right? version of drain the swamp, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. You saw that, but then I think, yeah, he has to distance himself yeah. visually and from a brand perspective from Trump and, and obviously, you know, he wants to create his own space within that within people's minds and and obviously there are people that love trump and there are people that really don't and i think he's probably on trying to cultivate more on the other side of that well and, and this is an anecdotal thing too just conservatives in my own life that um uh, there's a lot of people that were like trump supporters in the first four years but they're kind of like ready for that to be done with and, and they started to move to DeSantis. like there's that that kind of energy is like uh now we can kind of go back to normal like i think that's the who DeSantis is kind of getting is like some of that Trumpian energy, but also a little bit back to normalcy. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's where a lot of the mindset is. Mm -hmm. you, you always have a couple questions, right? Can he get through the Republican primary, which is, a, I think, the hardest part for DeSantis. Yeah. The second, can he get the general populist vote? And the swing vote that matters the most when it comes to every election in the United States today is the white suburban female. And how will they vote? And the, that, that was the Trumpian problem, right? There's a certain amount of those folks who are like, I like this guy. I'm down for it. Or I hate Hillary Clinton so much that right. I'm willing to vote for this guy. The anti-vote. Yeah. Right. That, the, the mystery box candidate. Like, yeah. we, we know who Hillary is, but we don't know who Trump is. So let's just gamble on it. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. I think that's accurate. And the, uh, will that go, will that dynamic persist through this? And is DeSantis more favorable to that crowd? When you look at it, it's easy to look at it just from the point of view as a political person, right? Who's into politics. And you kind of see this, who's the best, who has the best policies, who has the best like campaign strategy, who's. That sort of thing. And that's not how they're, that's how Republicans want to act, but they can't, right? Because you have this phenomena of like, but the anti-establishment so strong in this moment, the internet obviously enabling a large part of that. But then the, the question is, is, is even if, if that Republicans have to struggle with, if Trump wins, can he win the general populace, even in this condition? Because remember 2020 was not an, there was not a situation where he was the incumbent operating in the middle of a pandemic and he couldn't pull that one out with a with a geriatric who can, who barely left his basement for the entire campaign cycle who got more votes than any other president right and that's and that's like that's there's so, a lot of questions for that like how much of that is just people saying i don't I don't like the current situation. I want what, anything different than being locked into my the house. mystery box. Right. Well, now we know it's in the mystery box and it ain't shit. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. and th there's also an element, too, of Trump was ineffective at actually uh, 
commanding the swamp in a way like he was he was ineffective at controlling his own administration and hmm. and a lot of that might be like is that a you know is that a problem of trump or is that a problem of the swamp but you know and there's probably questions there on that but he was not necessarily capable of uh of kind of taking that control like he said he was going to right and you know and he was bogged down like you know you had the you had the pentagon was lying to him about troop movements in afghanistan and like it seemed like the intelligence apparatus was completely against him and trying to like frame him with comey and stuff so you know it's just like but there's a question if you vote him in is he going to be able to manage it or is it going to be a lot of just what it was last time right and there's additional one one additional one that's interesting here that you have mostly digital campaigns going on by trump at the moment, right? He has done CNN and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. uh, DeSantis, who is 44, he's five years older than me, right? Versus Trump, who's almost 70. Mm-hmm. Right. Him up. I thought uh, he was pretty he was, close in age to I thought he was. I thought he was almost approaching 80. I, I think he's in the right. 70s, yeah. So that, that generational difference, the biggest voting block, once again, is boomers. And so are they going to be, is it palatable for them to, you know, elect a Gen Xer? True. True. It's a good question. He's 76 years old. What's Biden? That's what I'm just looking up. 81,100. <laughs> Not how he acts. He's a vampire. <laughs> He's 80. He would be 82 in November 20, 2024. Oof. I don't know about that, man. I really hope that, well, I just, I hope that if Trump gets the nomination that people aren't so afraid of him that they vote for Biden again. Well, I just, Oh, we just talked about hate voting and we, we saw that happen two years ago. I think the, I think the worry is that it'll just be a repeat of last time. Yeah. That would be the worst case scenario. I would, but I would love to see he RFK hasn't, get the nomination. We're all, yeah. We're also assuming Biden gets it. Like yeah. RFK's strategy is pretty interesting right now. And he's, he's climbing in the polls right now. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of time to go. I mean, I just saw Dave Smith tweet that his rank of candidates right now is topped by RFK Jr. If, hmm, if he were to vote for anybody right now, he would vote for RFK. For me, for me, anybody. it would be Vivek, and I feel like a lot of the libertarian types haven't like fully looked at Vivek yet. He's been uh, making the the rounds on those podcasts, but I do think we do have an interesting situation there where you have Vivek, who's a millennial, right? He's literally my age, uh, and um, a more digital campaign that's happening there that I don't think is broken into the mainstream, but it, he has definitely the, the strongest like case arguments for what he, and he's charismatic yeah right he's both policy pretty good and very much a leader type rfk has an interesting thing because his i i kind of think of his campaign is he's reintroducing liberalism to the democratic party exactly which it's an is ideological campaign yeah right it's 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 kind of reminds me of like ron paul in a sense right kind yeah. of reintroducing the libertarian spirit back into the republican party in the bush years right where there's a whole bunch of folks who are like man I don't like any of this and I, and I identify as a Republican and I want to be that, that space, but none of this makes sense to me. I don't like the Iraq war. I don't like all these things that the Republicans were doing at the time, the bailouts, the big spending, all that kind of stuff. But, and but, all of a sudden he, he tapped into that. And of course it didn't go anywhere. The establishment opposed him, made it very hard. And the Democrats have it even harder, right? Republicans don't have superdelegates, right? Like RFK's pathway is way harder than Bernie Sanders even. Can you explain the concept of superdelegate? You know, I don't know that much about the details of it, but effectively what it is, it's like another layer of voting in order to get a candidate into place. And that those are like the elite of the Democratic parties get special votes and oh. effectively count more. And, and I believe a lot of this was introduced in that Debbie Wasserman Schultz when the uh, stuff that kind of scandal when the uh, 
uh, WikiLeaks uh, came out and well, stuff. I, I think a lot of this was like super enhanced during that time period, I if know. I remember right. And, and, I it, and it was actively to like hit Bernie Sanders and make sure that he couldn't get through. Well, no, no, superdelegates are old. They've been around no, the Democratic they're, they're for a while. But there was like a rule change around the superdelegates yes. that happened in 2016, if I remember correctly. That, that's that's yeah. seven years ago. Yeah. <laughs> right. We yeah. don't need to go too in the weeds yeah. on it. But just the, the idea that there are certain votes that, that have more power, more, more you know, leverage than... Uh, individual delegates in the in the Democrat Party specifically, Within which is interesting because they have the name Democrats, but they don't believe in equal rights to vote Imagine or equal that. representation uh, when it comes to picking their presidential candidate, and and that was used against Bernie in this really insidious way that we discovered, you know, that you know Hillary was collaborating with the media to make Bernie look bad, get special treatment by the media, but then the Democratic establishment made it extra bad, and and rather than you know basically calling it out and opting out the way Ron Paul did. Bernie Sanders pretty much said, "Well, I'm I'm Hillary's side now because I'm a team player." Yeah, right. Yeah. So uh, I don't think that happens with RFK, right? He's 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 out now. I mean, the guy is anti-lockdown and anti-vaccine. He is out. Uh, I think as far as policy, I, I do think we're a lot of folks are so energized by the anti-COVIDism that they're not looking at all of his other point of, points of view on things. Well, like, he's, he's, it's one of those things, right, where like a lot of the very important issues, I think just like general anti-establishment energy really likes, but mm -hmm. he, he's going to be bad on the issues that we would generally, like the three of us would generally disagree with Democrats right. on, right? Like right. like a lot of the climate stuff, a lot of that type of and it's not general just, economic policies, social safety nets, single-payer healthcare, like he's going to be bad on, right. he, like he's like a Jimmy Dore, right? Right. Um, well, he's going he's gonna to be bad on that except that his rhetoric in that space was very extreme, right? When he was just an environmental lawyer, he, he, he claimed that people who pollute should be put in jail for climate change purposes. Like he wanted to incarcerate people. That, that's a, that's very radical rhetoric. Um, I don't think, I don't think that matters as much as the other things, right? Cause he just doesn't have the capability or power or political ability to implement that, but he would that, but he, we're relitigating his, his campaign's relitigating COVID, right? That's already done. Well, What's his actually vision that. for I mean, how, do, how does he actually build like a, a forward looking campaign that actually really imagines a different future for the Democrats? I, I think that's a fair question, but I think he's been pretty explicit about the fact that he's not running on his stance on vaccines. He's not trying to rehash that, right. but every, every platform that he wants goes to ask on, him about yeah, it, though. Right. Like, like to, there's the whole crystal ball interview that went pretty viral, right? Right. right. And, and I mean, and I think he's been pretty open, especially in that interview about, you know, if there's good evidence to suggest that I'm incorrect about this. I will change my view. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, on one of his other interviews that I watched, I believe it was all in pod. Mm -hmm. They noted, and I noted as well that he was quick to say, I need to look into that further. I don't have enough information on that. And he did that a few times, enough times to where I was like, for a presidential candidate at this stage, who's announced, who's doing the, the circuit, you should, you should probably have like a stance on, on some of these things, like major issues, like education, freedom. You know, they were talking about, he believes in freedom in, in one space, but then necessarily, you know, he believes in strengthening public schools and doesn't necessarily believe in, in education freedom mm -hmm. as much as he should if he's being consistent mm -hmm. ideologically. And so there are some question marks. There's like blank areas in my understanding of what he really believes and how he truly feels and how he will govern on certain issues. Right. You know, and another example being talking about, um, you know, he doesn't want to touch Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security obviously, because it's a third rail for any candidate and right. they would never win. I mean, I mean you, you can't talk about that in the Republican Party. Either. You can't <laughs> but, talk about it anywhere. Right. Vivek yeah. is talking about it. But. Yeah, right. I mean, right. well, because he's a millennial and he knows he'll yeah. never get it. But um, <laughs> well, he's also like a billionaire. That's also true. He doesn't <laughs> need it. Almost a billionaire. But he does talk about, you know, looking at budget deficit from a perspective of 
reeling in the military, right? The reeling in this, you know, expansive defense system that we have bases all around the world, that sort of thing. So there are certain things where it's like he is edging into libertarian territory, is really appealing in certain ways, but there's still a lot of uncertainty for me. Right. And I do appreciate that his actual foreign policy points of view are actually compatible with that. One of my great irritants is how many Democrats say, we can't make this budget deal. It doesn't have enough defense spending cuts in it or doesn't have, in the case of the ones going on, no defense spending cuts while they simultaneously advocate for more military spending at the exact same time, right? right? They, they use that as two separate talking points as if they're not the same thing. Right. And I appreciate that RFK is good there. He's good on, um, he, he actually talked about the Fed uh, fairly intelligently in a way that I was I was interested in. And um, as far as like restraining spending, uh, that's, <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm open to someone actually talking about that. Yeah. Um, and it does, I, I would I would stipulate that he would probably govern moderately. Um, I would appreciate that in a lot of ways, right? He would have to, especially if the Republicans take back the Senate, which it looks very possible, and maintain the House, which looks within the realm of you know possibility. Hmm. Well, yeah, and, and also last point on it, I think that his his stance on Ukraine was pretty direct and definitive mm-hmm. that he doesn't support it, and he would he would work immediately to bring an end to it. Right. Which uh, brings us into that. If you guys feel like we've we've had oh, our one last point on the RFK thing is uh, like I'm just noticing this with like lefties in my own life that you know we'll vote democrat no matter what but like you know you grab a drink with them grab coffee with them and there's there's this energy that is just like man i just i just i just don't like the uh where things are going you know like there's like this complaining is just like i just don't like where the party's going and i, I just want a little bit of normalcy into the thing and like so like there's that that is feeling and i think rfk is really attracting this like pent-up energy that exists within the democratic voter base that's just like Oh, we've just gone too far. Like, yeah. I just don't like how far we've gone, but, the, but they're not, they're afraid to talk about it, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. Like there's that fear that factor. And then they, then they'll, they'll go to someone like me and they'll just be like, Oh, Kyle, Kyle will keep my secret. And then he says it on a podcast. Right on here. No names. If you're listening, you know who you are. <laughs> um, yeah. There was an interesting part of the DeSantis thing. Return to that are the, one of the best congressmen in the legislature uh, for the federal government is Thomas Massey. And he got onto the spaces and asked DeSantis about regulatory reform, specifically the RAINS Act, uh, who immediately said, that's no problem, absolutely can do, let's do it. And that is a tremendous win, right? I mean, think about think about the Trump administration. They had the House, the Senate, and the presidency for two years, and they passed one tax cut. That's it. Right. Can you can you go into a little bit of detail on what the Reigns Act yeah, is? Yeah, so the, the the opportunity cost was enormous. The regulatory reform for Trump happened all on the executive branch, right? So within within the executive branch, they can determine as the presidency how it runs to a certain degree because there's a lot of rules around things that have kind of ossified the bureaucracy. Uh, but the there was no like effort from Congress in this space. And the Reigns Act had been around for some time. It passed in Wisconsin. Basically, what it does is it says if a every new regulation has to have an economic impact study. When that economic impact study uh, passes a certain threshold, in order for it to become a new regulation, it has to become a law first. Oh, it has to be passed by Congress and Great. passed the presidency. It would drastically slow down the growth of the administrative state. It's proven in concept in Wisconsin, right? As uh, Walker was leaving Wisconsin as governor, he passed the Reins Act. And since then, it's been a series of Democrats. Uh, it has substantially restrained the growth of the uh the party. Nice. We had an explosion. Okay. So I got to, I got to give a shout out to Griffith's SD Bev here on this one because, uh, there are some overcarbonated, uh, uh, Arnold Palmer's out there in the world. And that is one of them. So 
let's this is the same type that on a previous podcast i was, yes. in, I was in the back like, <laughs> yes, oh, no. <laughs> i have to say despite their exciting uh entrance they are very worth uh the, the little bit of cleanup we're gonna pop to a, a quick zesty ad while we clean this up yep. and open a couple more Arnold Palmer's. Right? this episode is brought to you by our friends at zesty beverages they're on a mission to un the standard American diet by crafting drinks with fewer calories and more nutrients from real food. Their lineup of delicious offerings now includes Electric Peak Yerba Mate, postbiotic sodas, keto-friendly, ready-to-drink margaritas, and hard teas. Wondering what a postbiotic soda is? Well, head on over to ZestyBev.com to learn more and find a retailer near you. Once again, check them out online at ZestyBev.com. That's Z-E-S-T-Y-B-E-V.com. No, to be clear, to be clear, there were a couple of cases that got uh, left somewhere they shouldn't have. And so we got those cases. You have no fear. If you go buy a, an Arnold Palmer at your local grocery store, convenience store, it's going to be delicious and you're going to love it. And you should check it out because it's really good. It's my favorite flavor. It's super good. Uh, we've got we got half and half, right? It's hard tea and lemonade, about 5% alcohol by volume. And uh, I mean, you got this handsome, uh, you know, shredder on the front or whoever that is. Um if you follow the Zesty Bev page on Instagram, you'll see a picture of my brother Sam when he cut a really nice handlebar mustache, got uh, juxtaposed with the can, and the resemblance is striking. Pit vipers and everything. It's beautiful. You're going to have to put like a picture up, right? Next I will do that. I will do that. <laughs> Superimpose. Yeah. So the RAINS Act, did we get yes. in that far enough? I mean, um, yeah, putting yeah. that on the federal level will be enormous. There are so many lines of the federal code that we don't know how many regulations exist. Like audits of such things actually come back with a. We know how many pages there are, and there are pages and pages. For those of you just listening, David's motioning off the floor like five feet. <laughs> uh, stacks. Yeah, uh, and you know the 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 amount of estimated time to read them would take years. Well, this this reminds me of that time Nancy Pelosi said, "Well, we have to pass the bill in order to know what's in it, or whatever." Right. Uh, and the bureaucracy is doing that every day passing new rules and regulations and important to note that mens rea does not apply to those. What is that? Mens rea is the legal concept that in order to violate, that you're only guilty of violating a law if you knew it was illegal. So that doesn't right? apply to regulation. <laughs> no, not, not to these, right? So you are liable for complying with a code, even if you know it doesn't exist. I thought that ignorance of the law was no excuse. That's, a, that's, what, that's what it is. But the English, the, the common law tradition didn't have that, right? That's a progressive era trope. That came about later when we decided to create the bureaucratic state. Got it. Right. So it's, it is made everything much more litigious, made everything much more needful to have a lawyer on staff in order to comply with the laws, depending on your industry. Uh, and, and we have this on the state level too. I mean, states are also doing this. So there's some real great analysis of state regulations and how burdensome they are per capita or by state and things like that. But then on the federal level, it is such a huge problem. That, you know, people serve time for things like I put a retention in Montana, put a retention pond on my ranch. The guy went to jail for that. Uh, people serving time for trapping uh, lobsters in the wrong kind of cage. Things like that, that micro-regulated industry, perhaps in maybe good ways. Who knows? I'll be open to that. I'll, 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 my lefty friends, I'll say maybe it should be good. But at minimum, the government has a responsibility to at least, one, know what the economic impact is. Uh, in Montana, for example, we had another situation where the previous governor was going to ban all vape cigarettes, right? It had an economic impact, $300 million or more. And it, he could just, Department of Health and Human Services just introduces it. You know, it wasn't for a legislature that got on top of it and the tobacco industry that went and said, hey, this is a huge problem. And like, you know, 
rose up the issue, it could have passed. Hmm. Right? There was no fundamental check on the creation of new ways that you could go to jail or be fined for. Wow. Yeah. So the RAINS Act, uh, which did, you said, passed in Wisconsin. Yep. It's a law in Wisconsin. As far as I know, it's the only state that has that. There are some states that have similar things. I think Michigan has something similar somewhere in like that field. But uh, Wisconsin has by far the strongest. It's the model legislation for okay. the country. And so that legislation has been introduced in uh, Congress? Yeah, for some time now, but Great. it's never it's gone anywhere. Right? Eddying out and waiting yeah, for right. someone to care about it. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so DeSantis said he would sign it, no problem. Yes. No, which, is a, which is a great commitment. I mean, you know, I mean, uh, assuming he keeps it, a lot of things are said on the campaign trail that never come to fruition. Right? Never forget, Bush ran as a pro-peace, anti-nation building president. There you go. Most presidents run on uh, being anti-war. It's just once they get in, it's the... Didn't Obama as well? Yeah, Obama was entirely... And and start, he, started like seven new wars. Yemen, Libya. Yeah. I don't even know them all. But yeah, it's just like, th that Syria. is the thing. Is you can never really trust politicians on what they say they're going to do when they come in. Also, it's just like things are way more complicated than just coming in and just right. with the stroke Signing of the pen on the being line. able to do things as well. Like the president doesn't have all the power in the world as well, as much as people think that he's like a king. But you know, he, he, Well, he has way too much power. If you're getting into the aughts, he ought to have way less. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, with control of the administrative state, he can do quite a bit. But even that is statutorily limited by things Congress has passed that makes it impossible for right. him to fire people and change things in the bureaucracy. So I do, I, do, I think the the commitment is substantial, right? Because a lot of a lot of people would have worked around that. If you would ask Jeb Bush, I think he would have tried to like, oh, I can consider it and get into it when I get there. Um, but as far as the, you know, I mean, it is interesting too that it was Thomas Massey that said that because Thomas Massey, just a reminder, was the one lone representative who forced Congress to take an in person vote on the first CARES package. So they shut down the economy. During COVID. During COVID. Uh, there was a CARES package that was meant to like help subsidize people who are, couldn't go to work anymore. That was our stimulus checks and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, right? uh, and Congress was going to vote on it without a formal vote. And he he insisted it. So Trump came in and said, well, this guy is a loser. He's nobody. He's, he's, a, he's a third rate politician that needs to be primary yeah. in, the, in the 2022 election. Wow. I would like to remind uh, Trump people that that is exactly you guys were the ones calling him a mass hole on Twitter. Right. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'd like to remind you guys that. Right. Assuming any Trump people listen to this podcast. I mean, uh, but it's, it's it was the thing. It's just like. You know that everybody fell for it. It's yeah. it's it's like the Patriot Act. It's like all these things. Like when the emergency comes, then they're like, you know, the, the people always like to think when the emergency comes, I'll be the one that stands on principle. It's like no, most people will be the ones like screaming at Socrates to take the hemlock when right. when he's tried to to you know kill himself for corrupting the youth or whatever. Right. Like that's really where most people generally are. Is they'll just follow the crowd. Yeah, Jordan Peterson has some good good takes on that whole phenomenon. I think. Definitely. And it was that moment, you know, and that's where we're at in the war, right? Right now we're at the moment in the war where people who don't know anything about the history of American NATO relations with Russia are currently vociferously advocating for bringing us on the brink of, brink of nuclear war and using the lives of Ukrainians as the currency uh, to do so with a lot of reckless rhetoric uh, that has led to our other story, um, a far right and when we say far right, we've got to clarify this. <laughs> Neo-Nazis. <man. laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, so when, when the American ear hears that because of the progressivists, but so, spent so much time talking anyone who doesn't, isn't a progressive, a Nazi, you, you might be forgiven for saying, for thinking, oh, well, this is just 
a group of guys who are conservative or kind of right wing. No. Ukraine and a lot of Eastern Europe has a history of that's very deep of post-World War II culture maintaining a neo-Nazi ideology. Like these are the actually the grandsons of the Nazis. And they brag about that. This isn't us like castigating them. I would be always be very careful to calling anyone a Nazi, of right? Of course. Mostly because I've been called one so many times <laughs> for having very normal views about most things. <laughs> and I, uh, uh, so I wouldn't, I would always hesitate to do that. But in this case, these guys themselves don't call themselves that per se, but if you look at what they say about what they believe in and the, and the way they're trying to say, no, we're, we're not that we're rebranded now. Like we, we, we believe in more mainstream things. They are still racial supremacists, nationalists, socialists. Uh, and people who are definitely in that space that if you looked listed out the Nazi you know agenda and what they believe in, it is very, very tightly correlated. Well, worth also noting is that these are also the same types of people that we were funding and aiding in the 2014 revolution in Ukraine as well. Yeah, um, it's it, it, so the NGOs, and, and, and if you ask the neocons when when they're doing, they're just like, well, I mean, they're kind of different, like <laughs> like, and they try to yeah. be wishy washy about it, but right. like. I'm no, like you can say it. They're Nazis. We're funding Nazi militia groups. Like that's okay. That's what we're doing. Yeah. So, the, <laughs> right. so the NGOs like the Soros uh, Open Democracy Project and, and organizations like that definitely in 2014. You know, they you go on the website, you can look at it. They're they're blaming or they're taking credit for uh, encouraging pro democracy pushback to a democratically elected person who happened to be pro more Russian orientated than EU orientated in his foreign policy and in his trade policy. The interesting thing that's happened recently with those groups is using American military equipment that has been given to them on the backs of U.S. taxpayers have invaded the territorial integrity of Russia on a raid. Uh, they were stopped. They, As far as we know, the reports that I read uh, indicates that they were almost completely wiped out. Uh, but this is a very dangerous moment when you think about it. Using American military equipment, we have far-right extreme <laughs> neo-Nazi types uh, going into the integrity of Russia and causing chaos, right, and 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 attacking them. Now you might say, "Hey, look, you know this is this is what happens in war. You need an offense in order to have a defense, things like that." There have been some justifications on CNN, for example. They had a former general come on and say, "Like, hey, this could be a great strategy." <laughs> While simultaneously, the Defense Department is saying, and Ukraine is saying, "We didn't actually ask for this. Right? <laughs> that that this these guys are acted alone, right? Plausible deniability." Uh, very concerning because that what that indicates is either that Ukraine is in charge of their own troops, right? Which is scary. We're we're talking about the largest nuclear stockpile in the world, and what the media claims to be a crazy person at the helm, right? In Russia, in Russia with Putin, right? The, the, the stories have kind of got disappeared, but like two seconds ago, they were all talking about this guy has this guy's crazy and he's insane and is sick or something. Or second, that uh, this attack was supported by the U.S. Right. And they just want a plausible deniability, which is probably the most likely outcome. Right. Because you think about it, like how often does the government lie to us all the time? Would it lie to us if it was saying, hey, militia, plausible deniability, go in here and cause some havoc, try to get their attention over here so we can attack over here? Well, it does remind me a lot of the Middle East of how there's all these different factions at play. Like, like how much of 
the Ukrainian military is actually like centralized under Zelensky. Like there could be all these factions that are just like, no, we're just going to go joyride through Russian country right now. Or it's like, oh, we're just going to send a, dro- a drone to the Kremlin. Or it's like, oh, we're just going to launch a, a, a missile into Poland. <laughs> you know, like there's there's all these things of like how much of it is actually central. Like there could be a lot of different factions at play that we don't even really understand. And, right. and, you know, in the same way in the Middle East of how we're just like, we're going to fund this like, you know, Shade of ZI group or, uh, um, or uh, you know, like all uh, Al yeah, like, uh, Nusra Front yeah. and all this stuff. But like, you know, like the Taliban is actually factionalized in there. So when we're just talking about like the Taliban, it's like, well, which part of the Taliban? Like there's a lot of different Taliban, mm-hmm. you know, like it, I could see that being the case in Ukraine. Right. Right. It, it, it could be a mixture of the two, but it's still it, it is asking a question. It's your tax dollars being used on this. And is this how you want it? I mean, like all throughout the buildup to this war, we kept on saying these are defensive weapons, right? Defensive weapons is a highly subjective claim. It's subject. It's defensive to me if I'm defending myself with a weapon. But if I'm looking at you down the crosshairs, it definitely seems offensive to you, I would assume. For sure. Right? We're not just selling them um, body armor. We're selling them rocket systems that can both shoot down rockets and have nuclear warhead tipped missiles put into them and then shot into Russia with a four minute, you know, time to prepare. That is as much an offensive weapon as there could be. Right. And this, and this, you go on, uh, Northern Grumman and Lockheed Martin, these guys have descriptions of the weapon systems that they sell. And they say they can be offensive or defensive. And then when we sell them, the press release says defensive weapons. We market them as defensive. Well, I mean, this is interesting because, um, correct me if I'm wrong here, guys, but uh, was it not the NDAA, one of the NDAAs that were passed in the last, say, 10 years or so that made it... Uh, legal for the u.s government to propagandize its own people give me some clarity on that because i I heard that come up again recently and it really that that rings true to me in this sense when you're talking about all of these different factions of the ukrainian government or ukrainian military could be acting independently and we don't know because the media is only telling us what they want us to know Mm -hmm. the defense department's only telling us what they want us to know we have these leaks that are coming out suggesting vastly different things from what we're being told how do we know if any of what we're hearing from the legacy media is actually true? If if that is so, such the case that they can propagandize us. Yeah, it's funny because the the history of the United States since Woodrow Wilson is full of American government intentionally propagandizing, propagandizing the, the, the public. Um, and there were specific acts, espionage acts and things like that, that enabled that. The... The recent one, I think, is 2017, is what you're referring to, NDAA, but I could be wrong about which that. Which is the National Defense Authorization Act. Right, which is an annual bill that's meant to fund the military and authorize various different uses of force. Uh, it, it it sometimes changes policy. When it does so, in the case of what you're talking about, was um, since World War II, we've had a program for propagandizing the world in order to fight communism. That idea was, you know, in recently said you well you can now do that in america right so it was it was originally intended to be outwardly directed to other countries other than the united states but this 2017 i think ndaa shifted that inwards saying you can now do that mm-hmm. inside the, the borders of the united states right. and this is a typical example of what we call the boomerang effect and this happens across lots of different um, foreign policy areas that then come back around to the america great example the cia is forbidden was forbidden Uh, from doing anything in the United States and domestic operations. That was the domain of the FBI, which had more constraint about what they could do. Uh, And then we discovered that they were doing that. So we had the Church Commission that came up with a bunch of reforms. A lot of those reforms were 
then repealed after and the Patriot Act and the NDAs since. So there's there's this and conservatives really have to hear this, right? It's hard from here, but you really got to hear this is that anytime you push out internationally, you create the propensity for that to blow back, not just in foreign policy actors, but in your own domestic policy. Uh, everything from militarizing the police is another great example. We create military equipment, sell excess military equipment and use military equipment back to the police force. And so then when you show up in Ferguson, you got a guy on an armored vehicle facing a crowd with a sniper rifle rather than a police car you know, in a domestic policing situation. Right. Uh, each of those, in, including, I mean, everything from warrantless wiretaps to um, the way we handle uh, international assassinations, uh, for example, Anwar Al-Awlaki mm -hmm. and his son. Who are U.S. citizens and they were killed by a drone strike overseas, correct? Yeah, right. Under, uh, under Obama. Under yeah, Obama. With, without a warrant, with no process. And, and, and the question is, do you lose those rights as American citizen, even when you believe something wrong or even when you're, you know, potentially collaborating or in the company in the same car with a criminal, right? If you're in a car with a criminal in the United States and we just blew up the car, you know, that would be a problem. That would be a problem. <laughs> uh, Rand, Rand Paul actually got, you know, a lot of clout for coming out and saying, hey, drone strikes on American citizens are not okay. And that's what was in the NDA of that year was effectively, you know, their ability, clarifying their legal ability to do so. So I think the um, it, that indefinite detention, another one, for many years, there was claims that there was these things called CIA black sites where they would take people, you know, foreign nationals, and torture them using the governments of Egypt and other governments that were puppets of the United States government to get around the rules that the CIA can't torture. Right? Torture by proxy. Right. And uh, that was that was a conspiracy theory that turned out to be, you know, validated uh over time through various different you know m leaks media leaks and actual you know situations that blew back that we discovered in the wake of the arab spring um the the trick that i think most people have to grapple with is if you really want a robust defense but it is unrestrained by a vision of what that means you're you're running into this process of the people who have the most interest to expand the intelligence and security state the most are never limited by you know the formal institutions unless you have very strong laws around and we haven't for a very long time mm -hmm. so any of these presidents that are talking about how they want to reform our foreign policy but don't address those legal components of that are are not going to get anywhere in the long run you have to change that so that not only and then additionally you got to address the, the 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 intelligence component the knowledge of it um, if if most congressmen don't know about the actions of our military and our intelligence state, how can they hold them accountable? Right. You have well, a gang of like... eight, eight out of 150 that actually know what's going on. Wow. And that's a formal group called the Gang of Eight, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, that that is supposedly a you know a check on the president's ability to use these powers. It's largely captured by people who are in you know been there the longest and have the most clout in the establishment in the part of the deep state if you will right and can only really get transparency into these situations with you know an accident right like the snowden leak or yeah. you know james clapper saying something stupid in committee or something like that right well which i was just about to say it seems like we've been getting most of our information on all these things from leaks and whistleblowers as of late and i mean is there is the the fight against this sort of opacity uh and obfuscation of the truth by way of the media and the, and the intelligence community really most effective by pursuing more robust whistleblower uh, protections you know is that something that i mean because you know this kid 
uh, Jack Teixeira, I think the National Guardsman who leaked mm. the the information about the Russia Ukraine war. He's sitting in a jail cell. And he'll probably sit there for a long time, mm -hmm. and his name has dropped out of the news. You know, we, we're not talking about him anymore. You know, we're, we're not talking about Julian Assange much anymore. I mean, periodically people are still fighting on his behalf, but like, you know, Chelsea Manning as well. I mean, there are all these characters throughout the history of the United States, recent history of the United States that have brought really important information to light to the public that hasn't been able to come out through the proper channels that we needed to know important things about our privacy and our safety domestically and internationally. And, you know, it's only been able to be done by these sort of what the media would call nefarious, you know, bad actors or people that want to, you know, undermine the national security of the United States. But really what they're undermining is their control of the narrative. Right. And it's the capture of the by the corporate media, by the culture of D.C. and the blob, what I call the blob, right, that all encompassing culture of D.C. of the best people, the smartest people are in charge. We've got to trust them and make sure that they protect the country as opposed to a republic which operates on the idea of popular sovereignty which operates on the idea that you have to tell the public what you're doing in order to be accountable to the common vision of what is america and we've we've lost that we've lost that for so long people forget that that's what we're supposed to be yeah most people refer to america as a democracy not a republic right. which is technically not true per the founding documents but mm -hmm per what actually goes on. This isn't a republic. It's actually worse than that, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's probably a, not even a democracy. <laughs> right, right. I mean, <laughs> well, the, it should be referred to as an empire, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> it's a, so a banana republic, perhaps. Yeah. Watch, watch Gladiator, right? You have this really interesting contrast in the Gladiator movie with Russell Crowe between the vision of the emperor, right? To be an empire, you have to have a unitary state and the Senate, which is a representation of representative democracy, right? And the, the whole argument there is, well, in order to, you have to have someone who embodies the spirit of the people and they're, they're just like trying to be a populist, right? As he's talking to, you know, the people who are actually elected. That's a lot, a little bit closer to where we're at, right? Where you have permanent intelligence and military apparatchiks that are in charge of making these decisions with very little accountability at all. Um, and that vision of being a republic is the idea that you're a country of laws where they're limited by the authority and power delegated to them to then operate within this bound. And there, there are those laws exist, but we've systematically chipped away at them uh, over time. And uh, until you have someone who's saying, no, I'm going to repeal X, Y, and Z, and, and I'm going to implement these range of reforms. I mean, credit where credit's due, Vivek Ramaswamy has by far the most detailed amount of like, this is what I'm going to do with the intelligence state in order to reform them. Um, I, I think this is the moment for that beyond anything we've gotten to. The Twitter files obviously brought a lot of attention to it. But additionally to that, we have all of the craziness that's happened with Trump, uh, with the weaponization of these of these insiders uh, against a sitting democratically elected president. This is the moment for that. And I, I, what I hope is people insist on reforming the space. And that's one thing DeSantis did not talk about. Well, we shall see if he uh, gets any more clear or uh, deliberate about speaking on that topic. Um, did he talk about not that I the heard. debt limit? Oh, did he talk about the um, I don't. I don't remember. I, the, the, the Trey Crowdy uh, that interview that we played a little bit. He does touch on that, and and of course, I mean, like we talked about is when he's spending cuts, right? And right. The, the, he's going to support the Republican 
uh, houses deal, which effectively freezes spending. Spend more, but just spend a little less than more. <laughs> well, it actually, it, 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 it's called a cut, but what it is is a cut in the growth of spending. Right? There's an automatic built-in spending growth pattern curve. Uh, which even right now is less than inflation. So it's apocalyptic, but like a couple years later. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and and don't get me wrong, like a lot of these things, I mean, to steel man, the Democrats argument, a lot of these things are purely, you know, uh, social services cuts Uh, and taking back. And I love the word clawing back uh, unspent COVID funds, which is very interesting. We got into such a drunken spending spree that we didn't even, we had so much money, we didn't even spend it all that we printed out of thin air. And then we're like, inflation's terrible. What are we going to do about inflation? Like that's that's the status of the American federal government right now. And meanwhile, we have countries all over the world fleeing the U.S. dollar like rats from a sinking ship. Right, right. Which is which is very dangerous. So, so you have two like the two pressures, right? You have the okay. So we have this debt limit, right? We explained it last podcast. And it's like a credit card. We put in a credit card. We maxed our limit. Now we can go take out another credit card and increase our limit. And you have people saying, hey, we need to cut some domestic spending. We got to cut our household budget a little bit. And then you have the Democrats saying we need to increase our income. We need more taxes, more revenue The in order to solve this problem. And we're not going to sign it. So the Democrats in the Senate are saying we're not going to sign something that just cuts spending. We have to get tax increases. And in fact, you're also not cutting military spending, which is ironic because they're all pro-Ukraine spending. And then you have um, you know, the presidency who's really not negotiating at this juncture. I mean, really just staying out of it and basically saying, this is all wrong. This is all bad. You guys are going to crash the economy because when we can't service the debt, what happens to treasury bonds? They become worthless or worth less. Well, yeah. I mean, it just undermines confidence that your, any, any investment you make now is going to be paid in the future. Exactly. All right. But this is, this is what place we've been many, many times in the past. And the same thing plays out. The debt limits hit. They start shutting down government services. The media all says, did you know? that you can no longer visit Yellowstone National Park. And people go, and they all lose their minds. Uh, even though that you totally could go see Yellowstone National Park if the government prioritized their spending rather than trying to shut down all the things that most directly impact you. In fact, last time I was actually, I was actually in DC during one of these debates and one of these fights. Um, and one of the funny stories that happened on the ground was the lawn on the national lawn was growing too tall. And so this guy just came out with his own lawnmower and he was just driving around mowing the lawn <laughs> and they stopped him. Like police had to stop him and be like, sir, you're trespassing. You can't do that here because like, he's not the official lawn service guy. Like you gotta, he's like, he's like but I own this land. <laughs> <laughs> this land is my land. This, this land is your land. Start singing the middle school song. That's communist propaganda. <laughs> That's crazy. So not only did they waste money by arresting the guy, they, they didn't let him do a free service for the government in a time of need. Classic government. Ah, they yeah, don't take classic. charity. Yeah. <laughs> oh, do, oh, don't they? Well, it just goes to show you that in the absence of government, we'd still have charity. Yeah. But the, uh, the, 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 the debt limit debate is an interesting one because it is, it is defining, you know, the question of like, how do we want our government to operate? And do we want more taxes? Do we want less spending? And the, the trick is the American public can be very immature about this. We want all the benefits of government services without having to pay for them. That's why we're $32 trillion in debt. The Congress is reflecting the, if you pull the American public and say, Hey, should we t- cut taxes? Absolutely. Should we cut services? No. How could you do that? You monster, right? <laughs> they say the same thing at the same time. So like that, that inability to, I, I don't know why I always go back to this, be an adult about the question is so difficult for folks. 
And mostly because, you know, ultimately your, your gov- the government is the largest insurer, it's the largest employer, largest everything in the economy. Uh, and so there's going to be a lot of pain when it has to pull back. Well, yeah. And I mean, so far we've, because the dollar is the world reserve currency, we can leverage it so far like we have. We have been able to, as a country for many generations already, we've, we've been able to have our cake and eat it too. There mm. hasn't been a consequence. So it's not like people have any frame of reference for what what is going to happen eventually. You know, right. it's going to take that in order for people to go, oh, crap, like now there just aren't services. Like I don't really have a choice anymore to like gracefully kind of get my way out of this or get our way out of this. It's just, it's gonna crumble. There will be nothing you know, for us to have in that case, no services or whatever. I don't know how severe it's gonna be or not, but you know, it seems like we just, we're not, we're, we're not willing to think around that corner as a, as a populace because we don't have a frame of reference for it. Right. And a lot of this is happening very slowly over a long period of time, right? So when Democrats say, if you hit the debt ceiling limit, you don't increase it, you're going to crash the economy. Yeah. Why? Because all these banks are heavily leveraged into treasury bonds, not real assets, into promises that they will be paid back by the government. Which is supposed to historically has always been the safe move, right? Like that's the non-risky asset for these hedge funds that we call banks. During a low interest rate environment. Now that the higher interest rate environment, not as safe, right? That's why these banks are collapsing, right? Because the value prospect long-term on those bonds, those low interest rate bonds are now far lower. So it's, it, it, can the Fed monetarily jujitsu us out of that situation? I don't know. I mean, the, the, the amount of banks that could collapse if we hit this and then, you know, people quit buying treasury bonds could be substantial. The existing obligation on the interest rate on the treasury bonds for the u.s government is substantial part of the budget right so we're still not fully solving the inflation problem too we might need higher interest rates to actually get you know this 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 problem under wraps at least in the measured inflation much less the real inflation well and historically we've gone up to 20 percent interest rates yes. before yeah like that, that wouldn't be a new thing for us to do but it, it would be very painful if we just you know cranked it up right away mm-hmm and that's kind of what the Fed is doing. It's just like, oh, just a quarter here, a quarter here, a quarter here, and we just keep going. But, you know, we'll, we'll see how high we end up getting here. Right. And that, that, that story is the Volcker Fed, right? Mm-hmm. The end of uh, Jimmy Carter's administration, Fed inflation was a huge problem this entire time. Uh, Milton Friedman played a huge role in raising the awareness of the cause of inflation as a monetary phenomena. This guy, Paul Volcker, comes in and he jacks up interest rates mm-hmm. really high. Uh, and if you talk to everyday people about it, they're like, yeah, it was a terrible time. You couldn't get a, you couldn't get a loan. But that was needed in order to soak up all that excess liquidity that was there because of years of money printing without, you know, backing it up by real assets uh, that created the inflationary bubble. And what was the proportion of excess money supply then to the excess money supply we're looking at now? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We also like have a larger economy now. Though. The curve. Yeah. And is a bigger population and things like that. True. So they, as, as population increased, larger economy, more productive capacity. You know, the, the, that ratio is interesting, but it, there's not, there's not like a number, right? There's no like, oh, you get to 25%. That's when the, that's, that's when you become Greece, right? More to make the point of, of, of like, is it going to be more severe or less severe? Is it going to feel right. worse than the, the Volcker era? Well, it's interesting this- because the, 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 the 1960s and 70s were defined by what's called stagflation, which was high unemployment with high inflation simultaneously. We don't have a high employment problem right now. We actually have an underemployment problem right now for the most part. So, uh, because people aren't working, right? They're like, there's a lot of able-bodied people who are refusing to get a job. 
because also we have enhanced welfare benefits right now that are still in effect that are still in a lot of states keeping well, people out of it. Let me let me clarify that. So we have a we don't have a high unemployment problem because there are lots of people who aren't working. Mm -hmm. aren't, they're not seeking work, so mm -hmm. therefore they're not counted in unemployment figures. Right. 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 That doesn't necessarily mean that we don't have a lot of unemployed people. Yeah. What, what I mean is from the business side, right? The business at that time did, wasn't like, oh my God, I can't fulfill all my roles. You could still, you could fulfill your roles, but the jobs were more scarce. Sure. Right now we have a lot of jobs that aren't being filled. Right. So that, uh, you're, what you're hitting on is absolutely correct. There's two sides to that equation. I just want right? to make sure you have a clear. Yeah. And unemployment actually refers, should technically refer to both. Uh, because what you want to do is get to an equilibrium between jobs and open jobs where, you know, the economy sheds off a million jobs a, a month and then also hires on a million people and you have this like churn, right? That's right. what creates the labor market. Right. There's always this this static amount of unemployment that exists just by nature. Right, right. And there was a there was a theory, I forget what the theory is called, but basically what it said was that in a high inflationary environment, you have full employment, right? Or you at least have, you can't have unemployment while you have that inflationary environment. And obviously that was immediately proven just true. Right. Uh, throughout the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, that was the standard economic theory. The stagflation proved that completely false. We're still kind of operating. The, the Fed has a mandate that still says that they're supposed to try to keep unemployment low. Uh, but you're, what you're right about is like if they're only looking on the on that one side of the equation. Additionally, that it's, it's we're in a strange place, right? Because the in-net migration is also in a very strange place because we have so many illegals uh, that it makes it very difficult to actually say how, how many jobs actually are being fulfilled and what those look like um because we don't have a lot of knowledge about ingrid like our legal migrants we know that they get work or don't right illegals we don't know so there's a there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty in that area where we don't actually know the the, the dials and knobs that they're supposedly could turn they can't turn because they don't know it's all mirrors and smoke it's all fugazi <laughs> <laughs> what was it? is that what he says in the in that meme right it's a it's a nothing yeah i mean to me i, I look at this from you know my standpoint here and i i don't know if the fed can get us out of this pickle i feel like we're in checkmate because really ultimately the fed has two that has two tools right they can print money or they can raise interest rates and they kind of do opposite things right mm -hmm. and that's an oversimplification but generally speaking that's the directionality of it and if they print more money inflation goes up inflation's already high so they can't really print more money very easily without exacerbating that problem they can raise interest rates, but interest rates are already high and people are already struggling to, you know, with credit card debt and with getting uh, home loans and car loans. So they can't really do much more of that either. Mm. And if they do more of that, then that's going to put pressure on the banks and that's going to collapse banks. So it's like we are for sure be between the dog and the hydrant here and mm. we're going to get pissed on. <laughs> no way around it in my view. Right. I mean, unless they just come up with some genius plan that, that they've been keeping in their back pocket. They're going to print a trillion dollar coin. And then pay themselves with it. That's that's the big plan. Yeah, <laughs> brilliant. Yeah, I, I'm not joking. That's I, I, a, it's I, I, called I, I, the modern I, I, monetary theory. Oh, yeah. 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 Ponzi scheme got it. Like degenerate or degenerate problems required degenerate solutions. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were also talking before about how we don't have a white pill for this episode, and like uh, that was like a pretty black pill moment. So sorry about that, guys. We're, 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 we're not going to save you from this one. You just got to well, stew white, on that. Well, the white pill is is that this creates an enormous political opportunity, right? The debt limit, you know, you, if you don't allow people to say the Republicans are crashing the economy by trying to cut spending, that's an opportunity, right? Because the, the record is so clear here, right? If neither side is willing to come to the table and cut all spending. Yes, that's true. 
Uh, but right now in this environment, raising taxes would be disaster for most people, even if you raise them just on high income folks, right? Because that inevitably captures your upper, upper middle income that inevitably captures the people who are trying to grow business. And what you need in order to build out of an inflationary moment is a low tax environment, right? Really created in the 1980s was the high interest rate with a low tax environment, right? Because what that did is suck up liquidity while you're creating more productive capacity by taxing people less with the Reagan tax cuts that then allowed for the boom of the 1980s. Now, that was very difficult for a lot of families, but that was because that that's the hangover from the 1950s and 60s and spending in that era. We have to get through this hangover. And that hangover creates enormous opportunity to get a Reagan, right? To get that moment uh, where you can hopefully come to the table with some solutions that actually create economic opportunity. It, something that was interesting too is last week the Bitcoin conference was going on in Miami and you had two presidential candidates, the two that I think we're going to be talking about on this podcast often is right. Vivek Ramaswamy and RFK Jr. Is they both sp spoke at the conference and Vivek was talking about reducing the headcount of the Fed by 90% and RFK Jr. was talking about how uh, watching what happened in Canada with the trucker movement realized the necessity of like freedom of money from the state. And so these ideas are circulating in the ethos a lot more, which is, which is so very interesting. huge. It's mm -hmm. so huge to have a Democrat yeah. say the biggest danger to civil liberties is government control of money. Mm -hmm. That is enormous. Like that's such a huge moment because I mean, one, I, we've been saying that for <laughs> hundred years. <laughs> 100 years. <laughs> I, I struggled to put three digits on it, but at least 70. Uh, that has been very consistent that, that, that the government control of money is so fundamental. RFK saying that is a huge win for us. Yeah, absolutely. It, it was it was awesome to see that. And yeah, it bipartisan. And it goes to what I was saying a couple episodes ago went on here where the crypto lobby seems to be much more. It seems like it's becoming more influential in politics where you had like Liz Warren announcing her Senate campaign of being like, I'm building an anti crypto army and all that stuff like it is interesting as this like monetary stuff is is core to politics and seems to be one of the major issues. And also is like if you asked like five years ago, the average person what inflation was, the average person would not be able to answer that. Like inflation is a part of common parlance now, mm -hmm. which I think is also, uh, you know, it it's a white pill in a sense. It's also kind of a black pill because people are worried about it. But it is a white pill of like. The American public actually understands what inflation is to some degree. Right. Like, they just got to they just got to yeah. nail down the cause of it, right? The, what, mm -hmm. you're, what you're right about is like we would talk about monetary policy in like 2008, 2009. People would be like, "What are you talking about? <laughs> this is so so it's ethereal." Like, money is just money. Of course, it goes up and everything goes up in price every year. <laughs> and then it was like, "No, you don't get it. Inflation is this thing where it goes up really quickly." And they're like, oh, I, "They can't." Now they're experiencing it. So the question is, and the challenge is, is how do we get to more people? with the cause of inflation? How do we help them understand that the cause of it is the government monopoly of money and their inability to centrally plan it that inevitably results in a boom bust cycle that then creates the conditions that we're in today? How we do it is we turn that into a clip and we put it on YouTube <laughs> and it goes viral because you share it. Yes, right? I love it. Uh, yeah. In a related field to tech innovation this is AI regulation. Guys, I gotta go. Oh, is it already time? Oh, geez. I I have a I have a shoot. Oh wow! But you guys want to keep talking? We, we can actually. I need I need to take one of these cameras. <laughs> I'm no sorry. Problem. I'm sorry. I don't you want to take, cut us short. You can take that camera. <laughs> I can't take that camera. That's that's the one I need anyway. Um, 
no, I, I really do hate to hate to cut it short, but I do I do have a shoot that I have to do uh, tonight. So no problem. Do we want to react real quick to Bill Gates? <laughs> yes. Just Sounds like a good way to end a, it. Yes. As a fun way yes. to end it. Let's do that. That'll be our white pill. Here, I'll uh, I'll pull this bad boy up because context of this is it seems that there is now significant evidence that Bill Gates was indeed being blackmailed by Jeffrey Epstein. So I've been seeing this clip rumming rummaging around from like a year ago of when he was asked about his relations with Jeffrey Epstein and he had a, he had an interesting answer let's check it out watch his it. eyes what did you do when you found out about his background well it, you know I've said I regretted having those dinners uh, and there's nothing absolutely nothing new on that is there a lesson for you for anyone else looking, so uncomfortable well, he's dead, so, uh, you know, in general, you always have to be careful. Uh, and, you know, the, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of what we've done in philanthropy, very proud of the work of the foundation. Quick subject change. <laughs> also, he's dead, so I'm um, not sure how that happened. Wild, you huh? have to be careful. <laughs> Why is this a story? No, what, 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 the most recent news is that he was, there was evidence that Richard Epstein was using Jeffrey. Jeffrey, sorry. Richard Epstein is someone else. Jeffrey Epstein, <laughs> I don't want to disparage somebody, uh, <laughs> was using his uh, affair with a woman, a, a grown adult woman, uh, in the, you know, to try to get him to donate to Jeffrey Epstein's. Like, put my name on this charity kind of a stuff. Like well, it was a hedge fund that yeah. he was trying to start at the time that he wanted um, him to put in for. Um, and he was like very, not very subtly, isn't he? I know that this is a thing you should consider donating. Um, and so what it does is it gives some evidence to the architecture for the argument that Jeffrey Epstein's role for potentially some intelligence state someplace, uh, was to basically get dirt on these high net worth individuals through philanthropy and through his airplane and this island and all these things that he's been accused of uh to put people in compromising situations and then use that to for intelligence service purposes yeah which is you know we have evidence for it. we don't have all the evidence right we have the means right we have the airplane we have the island we have the the money we have the meetings we have some of the material evidence indirect right we don't have we have you know young women who have said that this is a thing uh, and what we don't have is the the ultimate material evidence, which is the logbook, the client list, the client list. Right. Uh, we know Jislaine uh, Maxwell tried, found guilty as being, and also her father, the British government says, was a double agent for Mossad, and he ran the whole like media empire in Great Britain that pushed for the war in Israel in the forties, <laughs> right? And he was found dead naked off of a yacht. <laughs> Oh, of course. So, yeah, so, of course. Like, there, there is a lot of connections that exist <laughs> right. here that suggest the intelligence apparatus stuff. Well, and the interesting thing about Ghislaine Maxwell, too, is she was tried and convicted for trafficking. Right. But we don't know who or yeah. to whom, right? The clients. Yeah. More, more and importantly. It, it, and in sex crimes specifically, the it's not typical. It's, it's the more typical thing is to know who the Johns were, right? Not, not like that's who you go after right right because they're the they're the adult responsible who is not who's supposed to say no in this situation where they're offered something illegal uh and in this case you know that has not been released so uh, the more noise made about this the more consistent noise i think is a, a net good 
uh, for people um, to drain, draw attention to that this is a cover-up, you know, that this is something that is being ignored because it's inconvenient for the people who run the media. Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself. And all of us live very happy lives. And if any of us are found unalived, it wasn't our own doing. <laughs> And on that note, I'm sorry I have to go early. It's because I have a day job. But if you like, subscribe, follow, comment, share the podcast with your friends, maybe just maybe we can all make this our day jobs and then I won't have to cut our awesome conversation short. But uh, we appreciate you for watching. We'll be back with another one next week. Thank you, David. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you, Evan. Thank you for watching. See you next time. See you.